What have I done to deserve love like this? Uh, what a powerful phrase that is. I think that's that could be straight out of many places in the book of Ephesians. And this morning, uh, we're going to continue our series. As a matter of fact, we're going to wrap up our series uh, in the book of Ephesians. It's been 10 weeks uh, that we've been in the book of Ephesians. And I don't know about for you, but for me, it has flown by. And uh, I think it's been a really great challenge for me as an individual, as a Christian. Um, I also think it's a great challenge uh, for us as a church, because I really think uh, Ephesians is like a handbook, not only for an individual Christian about what we're called to believe and what we're called to do, but also for a church, what a church is called to believe and what a church is called to do. And so some of these highlights, you know, chapter one, we talked about the riches we have in Christ. We are crazy rich in Christ. We talked in chapter two, uh, chapter two, verse one of, of how low can you go? It says you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. God says you were condemned to death. You can't get any lower than that. But praise God, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. So how amazing is that? God says, I give you this gift, not because of what you've done, or because of what you deserve, but because I love you, and because of my grace. We talked about uh, how God can do anything far beyond what we ask or imagine in chapter 3, uh, and then in chapters 4 through 6, which we're going to wrap up today We've talked about this idea of walking with God. In chapter 4, uh, Paul says, walk in a way worthy of the manner with which you've been called. And so we've been talking about what does it look like to walk with God. And uh, like I said, this book has just been a, a huge, uh, I think, benefit for me as an individual. It's like a handbook for me. It's like a handbook for our church, how to walk with Christ. But I think what we're going to see this morning is we've been saying grace affects every area of your walk. But what we're going to see this morning is that this is not a walk in the park, okay? Uh, the way this book actually concludes in chapter 6 is a reminder from the Lord uh, to us that uh, this walk that we are on with Him is not just an easy walk in the park. Uh, there is an enemy and an adversary. Um, September 22, 1993, is about two hours after midnight. Tugboat Captain Willie Odom was guiding a heavy barge up the Mobile River in Alabama, lower Alabama, in the pitch black darkness. The fog was thick that night, and he was struggling to properly read his radar. Having no compass on board and lacking a chart of the waterways, he made a wrong turn off the Mobile River and entered the unnavigable Big Bayou Canoe. Now, this body of water was crossed by a CSX railway bridge. Odom believed that he was still on the Mobile River and had identified the bridge and his radar as another tugboat. Now, this bridge was struck by the barge at about 2.45 a.m., and some elements of the bridge's engineering and design had not been adequately secured against unintended movement. So the collision forced the unsecured end of the bridge span approximately three feet out of alignment and severely kinked the railroad track. Eight minutes later, at 2.53 a.m., the sunset limited an Amtrak train en route from Los Angeles, California, to Miami, Florida, with 220 passengers reached the bridge. It was traveling at over 70 miles per hour at the time. The locomotives careened off the bridge and into the water below, along with multiple train cars. 
A massive fuel spill and fire ensued, and 47 people were killed. 103 people were injured. Look at that picture. What chaos that would have been to be a part of. You know, a later investigation by National Geographic revealed that the train was about 30 minutes behind schedule due to a delay that actually happened in New Orleans, um, where a toilet and an air conditioner on the train had to be repaired. If that had not happened, they would have been ahead of that collision on the bridge. But the result of this whole accident was maximum destruction, pain, injury, and death. I mean, look at that picture. The train ran off the tracks. How did this happen? You know, was it the fault of the tugboat captain? Um, was it who lost his way in the fog? Or was it the tugboat designers who failed to install a compass on the, on the tugboat? Was it the bridge architects who designed a flawed bridge? Or the person who broke the toilet on the train in New Orleans? <laughs> you know, all those factors played a role in this terrible tragedy, in this destruction and loss of life. Had any one of those things been different, there might have been a different outcome. But you might be asking, why am I telling you this story? Well, I want you to realize this morning that you and I are on a life journey. We're on what, what's called a walk with Jesus. And if you know Jesus, your journey began the day you placed your faith in him. And your destination one day will be heaven. An eternity spent worshiping and serving him if you know Jesus. But before you arrive at your destination, you have an enemy that wants to do anything within his power to derail your train, to cause you to crash, to trip, to stumble, to crash and burn. Just like there were many factors that led to that fatal crash in the swamp, so also Satan, your enemy, is attacking you from many different angles. He cares not whether it's the seemingly innocuous wayward glance that you make or a small white lie or maybe a spectacular moral failure. Either way, he wants nothing more than to destroy you, to destroy your life and the lives of the people around you. Because that's what the devil does. But this morning, what I want us to see is that there is hope in Ephesians chapter 6. God provides a way for you to defend yourself against this enemy. Uh, to defeat him and to avoid the train wreck of your soul. This morning, our, our message is titled, The Battle is Real, because that's what we need to realize this morning, is there is a battle going on right now, much of which you can't even see, uh, for your souls. And God says, I want you to fight, and I want you to use the tools that I have given you to fight. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So if you will, if you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verses 10 through 20, and follow along as I read these verses. It says this, Finally, be strong in the, in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness 
and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of God. So we've been talking about the grace effect, how God's grace affects every area of your life. And this morning, we're going to talk about how God's grace allows you to fight against an enemy that you could never defeat on your own. In fact, it's impossible to defeat this enemy unless God gives you the grace to conquer him. And so uh, what we want to look at this morning is just a couple of different things. And the first thing I think that this text tells us uh, is that we need to, first of all, recognize the enemy. Recognize the enemy. Another way of saying this is remember who the enemy is. Remember who the enemy is. Um, I want to show you just a, a paraphrase from the message. And I don't preach from the message, but the message is helpful. It's a paraphrase of Scripture. It's helpful to read from time to time. And I love the way it puts uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It says this, This is no afternoon athletic contest that we'll walk away from and forget about in a couple of hours. This is a for keeps, a life or death fight to the finish against the devil and all his angels. Again, this is this is not something that we can just treat casually and say, ah, I hope I get this right. God says this is an essential part of following me is to be aware of what's going on and to be aware that the battle is real. The enemy is real. The way this verse is worded is you realize this is almost like hand-to-hand combat that we're describing here. It's a real struggle. So I think the first thing is to recognize this enemy. And, and what is it that we need to recognize about him? I think in this, these verses we see, first of all, that the enemy is powerful. The enemy is powerful. Ephesians 6 verse 10 says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That first verse talks about God's power. Well, you know why we need God's power is because we are facing a powerful enemy. We need God's power because we fight a powerful enemy. Uh, we see examples of this in Scripture. First John uh, 5, verse 19 says this, We know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. God makes no uh, mistake about it that, there, that the devil has real power in the world today. And, and what we see here in these verses is that it's largely in an unseen world that we can't even see happening. The things that are happening behind the scenes uh, where, where our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And so the battle is real. God says we need to recognize this enemy, uh, a powerful enemy. Think about when Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter 4. I think it's in verses 8 and 9. The devil came to him and said, I want to offer you all the kingdoms of the world. And you might say, well, did he really have the authority to offer you those kingdoms? The answer is no. Yet the devil exerts tremendous influence over the people in those kingdoms. Um, and, And many people give their allegiance to him. So the enemy is powerful, but here's the next thing that we have to realize is that what does the enemy do with that power? Well, the enemy is also wicked or evil, uh, cruel, you know, because the power that the devil has, the power that the enemy has, he uses it to destroy people. 
He uses his energy, his power to destroy people. Look at this verse. Uh, and I've highlighted a couple words here in verse 12. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Uh, there's actually a book by that title. Some of you may have read it. Um, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So this, this enemy that we have is evil, intent on nothing but evil. And you have to remember that. A lot of times it's easy to forget that there's actually an adversary who wants us to struggle and to fail. You know, his goal is to destroy life, especially in relationships um, and in life. He, he just wants to destroy things. Let me, uh, uh, I want to read a quote for you uh, from this commentary. I've, I've actually, if you want a good commentary on Ephesians, this is by John Stott. And I've used this a lot over the over these weeks that we've been together. This is a really great commentary. Got really good background knowledge and things, but it also is just down to earth, easy to read. So can't recommend this enough. But John Stott says this. He's talking about how evil the devil and his minions are. He says this. They have no moral principles. They have no code of honor and no higher feelings. They recognize no Geneva Convention to restrict or partially civilize the weapons of their warfare. They are utterly unscrupulous and ruthless in the pursuit of their malicious designs. Um, Basically, he's just saying our enemy doesn't care how cruel he has to be, doesn't care how messy things get. He wants nothing more than to destroy you. Whatever power he has, he wants to use to destroy people, especially God's people. Destroy lives. You all can think of examples of where you've seen that happen. You know, the enemy is wicked. The enemy and his minions use their power to destroy. But the third thing we have to realize about our enemy is that the enemy is cunning. He's crafty. He's tricky. Uh, Verse 11 Verse 11 says, uh, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Really, the, the translation of that phrase is the methods of the devil. The, the King James says the wiles of the devil. In other words, these are the tricks of the devil that he wants to use to destroy you. So again, we have to realize we, we are fighting against an enemy who is incredibly good at what he does. Incredibly good at what he does. Cunning is the word that I put there. And uh, uh, 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Sometimes the devil acts like a lion. Uh, it says, uh, prowls around like a roaring lion. The thing about, they say that about lions is they sneak up on their prey. And just before they pounce, they roar, which terrifies it, either causes it to jump or just to freeze, and they're able to take it down. So sometimes the devil's like a roaring lion that prowls around and then pounces. Other times, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 14, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Sometimes he's attractive, and the things he offers you are attractive. He wants to destroy you in that way. But more often than not, He is subtle as a serpent. This goes all the way back to the beginning. We actually read these verses last week. Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So what we see, I think, when we look at Ephesians 6 is that we see that from the very beginning, your enemy and my enemy 
the church's enemy, the enemy of Jesus Christ, has been tricky, malicious. He's a deceiver. He's the father of lies. And he wants to use all his considerable power to destroy you and the people around you. Recognize the enemy. The enemy is powerful. He's wicked. He's cunning. Um, Another book I would recommend to you this morning, I'm recommending two books, uh, The Screwtape Letters. So I'm actually going through this book right now with a group of, of some of the elders here at this church. And on Tuesday nights, we meet to go through this book. This is a book by C.S. Lewis that gets into the mind of what a demon would be like. Okay, So this is actually a made-up book that he's writing, and it's like an uncle demon writing to his nephew. There's actually a Spanish version of this. Uh, I'm going to see if I can say this. Cartas del Diablo a sub- Sabrino. Okay. Sorry for the, <laughs> sorry for the accent. But it's, it's letters from the devil to his nephew is what it is. And this is a powerful book because he talks about if a demon was going to try to take you down, if one of Satan's minions was going to try to destroy you, how would he do it? And, and there's some really great insights in here. It's written so that we as believers uh, can take note of these strategies and then fight against them. And so, uh, In this book, there's a quote on page 31. One of the most crafty and cunning things I think the devil does is he convinces people that he's not real, that he's not even there. In fact, it says this, uh, Screwtape says to his nephew, our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. In other words, hide ourselves. Don't even let the enemy know. Don't let the Christians know that we exist. In fact, it's better if they don't even believe that we're real. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about there's two dangers that people fall into. One is that they don't believe the devil's real. And the other is the opposite. They, they're they fascinated with the devil and they just pursue him and give him way too much energy. Um, e- both are equally dangerous, he says. But either way he does it, the devil is cunning. Um, another poem, and this is author unknown, but again, just on the, I think this is one of the great dangers of our time is that we forget that we have an adversary, that he is actually real, and that he really wants to destroy us. So listen as I read this poem, author unknown. It says this, Men don't believe in a devil now, as their fathers used to do. They've opened the door to the broadest creed to let his majesty through. There isn't a print of his cloven feet or a fiery dart from his bow to be found on earth anywhere, for the world has voted it so. But who is mixing the fatal draught that kills both heart and brain and loads the earth each passing year with 100,000 slain? Who blights the bloom of the land today with the fiery breath of hell? If the devil isn't or never was, won't somebody please rise and tell? Who dogs the steps of the toiling saint and digs the pits for his feet? Who sows the tares in the field of time when God is sowing pure wheat? But the devil is voted just not to be, and of course the thing is true. But who is doing the kind of work the devil is supposed to do? Won't somebody step up to the front right now and immediately begin to show how the frauds and the crimes of the day sprung up? For surely we want to know. The devil was fairly voted out, and of course the devil's gone. But simply tell, I would like to know who carries his business on. What a great reminder. We see the work of the devil all around us, but it's easy for us to say, oh, that's a natural disaster. Or no, that person just made poor choices. But what we've got to realize from Ephesians chapter 6 is that we have an enemy who is trying to destroy us. An enemy who is trying to destroy us. And 
would like nothing more than to create a scene like this in your life where your life has gone off the tracks, maximum damage, your relationships are broken. He is cunning. So the battle is real. We've got to recognize the enemy. And so I want to ask two questions this morning as we kind of think about this point. Because I actually think before we can even talk about doing battle against the enemy, we have to recognize that he's there and recognize what he's about. So the first question is this. Why is he so often able to to defeat us? Why is he so often able to defeat us? And I, I would say this. It's oftentimes because we forget that very first point of how crafty he is, how powerful he is, um, or that he even exists at all. I mean, how many days can you go through life and just forget that there's somebody out there that wants to destroy you? So I think the takeaway from this is realize that you have a target on your back. As a Christian, you have a special target on your back. Satan would like to destroy every human because humans are God's prized possession. But he especially would like to destroy you because of the impact that would make on other people coming to know Christ. You have a target. So that's the first question. But I think the second takeaway question that I would just ask uh, is this. is In what settings do we especially need to recognize the enemy? That's the first point. Recognize that we have an enemy. In what settings do we especially need to recognize the enemy? And I would just name a couple here. First and foremost... <clears throat> Something we talked about last week, and that would be the setting of the home, okay? Uh, whether it's in our marriages uh, or your relationships with your kids or your relationships with your parents, recognize that we have an enemy who would like nothing more than to, just, to destroy those things. It's no accident that chapter 6 follows immediately after chapter 5, which talked about the sanctity of the Christian home. The devil would love nothing more than to destroy our homes and our marriages, And here's the other thing about recognizing the enemy, let's say, in your marriage. Um, It's very easy when you're having a dispute with your spouse, maybe a long-going disagreement or dispute, as you see your husband or you see your wife as the enemy. And guess what? I think this passage reminds us we've got to remember who the enemy is. Yes, you may disagree with a human being, uh, but our battle is not against flesh and blood. Remember who the enemy is that's really trying to destroy your relationship. Um, incredibly important in our homes. I think the same thing is true. Another setting we've got to remember the enemy is, is in our church, right? In our church. Um, not only because we're here together to make disciples and to grow the kingdom, but also whenever these little disagreements pop up in church, remember, <laughs> you might be upset with another person, uh, but remember who your enemy is. It's not that other person. It's somebody who, it's, it's somebody who's far more powerful, powerful than any human being could ever be. Remember who your enemy is. You know, I think the temptation in a church, uh, if you're, if you're having a disagreement, if there's a faction who disagrees with you, your point of view, the temptation is to look at people and to blame them for what's going on. And yes, people will let you down. You see that in your home. You see that in your church. But you know what? Remember and recognize who the enemy is, who the enemy is that wants to destroy Trinity Church. You know, I think before we came here, we asked a lot of questions, found out a lot about the history of Trinity Church. And we all know the devil won some battles in Trinity Church in days past. But guess what? The devil's won battles in every church in days past. And praise God 
this church. And no church is defined by their past. We're defined by what God wants to do here in the future. You know, God's church survived whatever attacks have happened in the past. And by God's grace, this church will survive whatever attacks the devil brings in the future. But we've got to remember who the enemy is. God wants this church not just to survive, but to thrive, to bear fruit. We've got to win this battle that he's placed us in. So what settings do we need to recognize the enemy? I said in the family, in the church. I think relationships in general would just kind of be the third one. And then the last one I would just say is is in adversity. When you face adversity, uh, oftentimes you can start blaming people or blaming circumstances. And um, regardless of where that adversity comes from, you have to recognize your enemy, the devil, and your Savior, Jesus Christ, have completely opposite goals in that time of adversity. The devil would like whatever that adversity is, he would love to see it destroy you through discouragement or failure or maybe even death if it's a sickness. The devil would love to see your life end. But God has a different purpose in adversity. It's to refine us, to build character, um, to drive us closer to him. And so remember those things. During the time, these times, during these settings, we've got to remember especially that we have an enemy who wants to destroy us. And we can't let him win that battle by God's grace. So that's the first thing um, is to recognize the enemy. But then uh, one more verse here. This is from uh, 1 John verse uh, chapter 4, verse 4. And this is from the King James. I love the way it says it. It says, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We've got to remember that. We recognize that we have a powerful enemy, but greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That's the important thing to remember here. And so now what? God says, I want you not only to recognize the enemy, but I've given you some tools to use. In fact, I've given you a tool to use. It's called the armor of God, the armor of God. And so that's what we're going to spend some minutes talking about this armor. You know, in the minds of uh, uh, Paul and his readers, uh, a soldier, the picture of a soldier wearing uh, armor would be very, uh, just at the front of their minds. They would see it every day. You know how like when you're driving down the street here in uh, St. Tammany Parish, how many police do you see every day? Lots, right? You see a lot of police cars uh, and it's just part of life. You don't even really think about it. They wouldn't have even thought about it if they saw some Roman soldiers walking down the street because they were everywhere. So they would see in their mind pictures like this. Uh, this is an artist's conception of what a Roman soldier would have looked like. Um, it's just a vivid picture, a colorful picture that would have been right at the front of their mind. They would have understood all these pieces of armor. And so this morning, we don't really know what Roman soldiers look like. We've never seen one in person, right? Uh, but we want to look at these pieces of armor and try to understand God says, these are your tools to fight against that powerful enemy. Um, and he uses the picture of the armor of a soldier. Um, Romans 13 verse 12 says, So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. You know, earlier in Ephesians, he said, Put away from you all those deeds of darkness. And now he says, Put on this armor. Kind of echoes what, what Paul says earlier in Romans chapter 13. So the battle is real. We've got to use this armor. But the first thing we have to realize is that this is the armor of God. All right? The armor of God. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. This is not our own armor. 
This is not something we can do in our own strength or power. Uh, This is something we can only do with God's strength. You know, over and over in Scripture, I believe God asks his people, who are you going to trust? Who will you trust? And I think frequently we give the answer, well, I think I can trust myself here. I'm pretty sure I can take care of myself. I can fight this battle against the devil. I can get through this situation. I just got to pull up my bootstraps and hunker down and I can get through this on my own. But this passage and many others remind us that you cannot trust yourself. You cannot trust other people. You can't trust the politicians of your day. You can't trust anyone other than the Lord your God. I love the book of Isaiah. We're actually going to be in Isaiah the next four weeks leading up to Easter. Over and over again, the question in Isaiah is, who are you going to trust? The only place you can actually put your trust that will save you is in the Lord. Can I do this on my own strength? God had to tell his people this over and over again. You can't trust anyone except me, just like he's telling us this morning. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 29. This is God speaking to his people. He says, happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people who are saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs. The point there is God says, I am the one who protects you with that image of armor, even in the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 44, another passage about weapons of warfare. Uh, Again, the psalmist says, for not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Did you catch that? The psalmist says, I have some weapons, but I don't trust these weapons. (laughs) I have to trust in the Lord who gives me these weapons. And that's the thing we got to realize this morning when we look at the armor of God, is that these are God's weapons for us to use during this this battle. Ephesians chapter 1, a couple weeks ago we looked at this. talks about the greatness of his power. Toward us who believe according to the working of his great might so that that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. See, brothers and sisters, we cannot defeat an enemy that's so powerful, so crafty, so wicked, so cunning. It's absolutely impossible to defeat this enemy. But with God, we can defeat him. That's the only possible way this can happen. Through the armor of God. And so we see um, we use God's power, but also one other word here we need to look at here is this word uh, that has to do with our position as we use the power. And that is standing at the ready. Did you notice how many times in these verses it used the word stand? Uh, Look at verse 11. Verse 11, it says, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Skip down to verse 13. It says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. And then verse 14, stand firm, therefore. Over and over again, it keeps saying stand. Well, why is that so important for a soldier of Jesus Christ to remember? If we're talking about this image of armor, why is it so important? Look at this picture. It's a soldier who's asleep. Is that soldier ready to fight? No. 
That soldier is ready to be attacked. Uh, his weapons aren't in his hand. This idea of standing firm as being uh, kind of on the on your tips of your toes, a tiptoe ready, if you will. You know how coaches in sports tell their players, don't be caught flat-footed standing there with your knees locked. You can't defend anybody, but you got to get down. Got to be ready. You got to be got to be ready uh, on the tips of your toes, standing at the ready. So the power, and then the last thing we see here when we talk about using the armor, God says you got to not just have the armor but use it, is realize what these pieces are. Put them on so that you can actually use them. Um, again, one more verse from Isaiah 59, verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Those verses are actually talking about God. So this is God's armor, and he says, I want you to take this armor, and you put it on, and you fight in the way that I ask you to fight. He shares it with us. So using the armor, what are those pieces? What are those pieces? Now, if you've been in church your whole life, you've probably heard talks about this, how the armor of God is supposed to be used. And so we want to spend a few minutes this morning talking about all those different things that Paul lists off and say, what does this actually mean? What does it look like for me to put this on and to actually use it? So the first thing there that we see is the belt of truth. How do I put this on? What is the belt of truth? You know, it's that thing that kind of holds all the garments together. In fact, uh, many would say this is almost more like underwear for Roman soldiers. So it's important for them to have this in place uh, as they're going out into battle. But it ties everything all together. So how do I put this on? I think there are kind of two things you have to realize with almost every one of these pieces of armor. And that is, first of all, you have to receive it. And then you have to demonstrate it. Okay, does that make sense? So you have to receive the truth, the belt of truth, receive the truth about Jesus Christ, believe it, trust it. That's how we receive it. But then you demonstrate the truth by the way you live your life, a life of integrity, a life of sincerity. God says if you have received the truth about Jesus Christ, if you trusted him, now live a life that is characterized by that truth. Back to this slide, grace affects everything. You know, when we have a doctrine, the truth about Jesus, we receive that truth. But then that gives us the duty to demonstrate the truth and demonstrate the honesty and the integrity, the character that Jesus Christ himself demonstrated. So we receive the truth and then we demonstrate the truth. Second piece of armor is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. Now, again, on a piece of armor, this is that piece that would come from your waist up. It protects all your vital organs. You know, even today, we actually still use this kind of armor, even though we don't do that kind of uh, of combat. But look at this, uh, a picture of a guy in a bulletproof vest, right? That guy's pretty serious looking. Um, but we recognize that even today with firearms, we still use this piece of armor, this, this idea of a bulletproof vest to protect your vital or- organs. So the question is, if this is going to protect your vital organs, how do I put on this righteousness? How do I put on righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness? I think, again, we have to receive it first. First of all, you receive it. God hands it to you, and he says, I have given you righteousness. Not because you deserve it. Remember, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. In fact, you don't have anything righteous in you whatsoever. But I'm going to hand this to you as a gift. And I'm going to declare that although you are guilty, I'm going to declare that you are perfect and righteous because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And so God says, receive that righteousness, that pardon, that that justification is the theological word we use for it. Receive that from God. 
And then he says, don't just receive it, demonstrate it. That's how we fight against the schemes of the devil is through this idea of demonstrating the righteousness of God through your character and through your conduct. The devil wants you to do the opposite of righteousness. Chapter 4, Ephesians says, no longer walk that way like you used to. Don't walk that way. Walk this way. I've spent several weeks talking about that. The next thing is the gospel boots. Uh, Verse 15. Verse 15 says this. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, we can't overestimate the importance of having good shoes. Because remember, nowadays in war, it's still important to have good shoes. In fact, if you're going on a walk or on a trail, you need good trail shoes. But think about how far the Roman soldiers had to walk. A long way. They didn't have troop transports or convoys or railway cars or anything to move the troops. If they wanted to get from point A to point B, they had to walk. So it was incredibly important that they had the right shoes on so that they could take the power of the Roman Empire anywhere they needed to go. And so these gospel boots, how do we put them on? I would just say, think of them like all-terrain shoes, okay, that can go anywhere. It goes with you anywhere. The gospel of peace goes with you. You receive it by believing in the gospel, by believing in the good news about Jesus Christ. So that's the first question is, have you received it? Do you believe this good news that Jesus died for you to pay for your sins? If you do believe that, receive it and then strap it on your feet and take it with you wherever you go. Because you see, we go out into the world, we walk somewhere, we travel somewhere, and God's grace goes with you wherever you go. Proclaim it, speak it, share the gospel. We're going to see that here at the end of our message today. Isaiah 52, verse 7, again, another connection between Isaiah and Ephesians. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Next piece is the shield of faith, verse 16. In all circumstances, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. I think it's important for us to recognize that word all circumstances right because it's easy to say well maybe during hard times i need to pick up that shield and guard myself against the adversity but i think it's in the easy times uh, when we forget that we're still under attack and god says in all circumstances have that shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the darts of the evil one well what are the darts a couple ideas i think accusations maybe from people or internally, accusations that you face. Doubt, the dart of guilt, the dart of disobedience, temptation to rebellion, the dart of lust, the dart of malice, the dart of fear. A lot of these things that Paul has listed off earlier in the book of Ephesians, uh, back in chapter 4, verse 19, and chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, all those things are darts that the devil is shooting at you. And he would love to hit you with one of those darts and cause you to burst into flames. Maximum destruction is what the devil wants. And he's shooting at you. He's shooting at you right now. And God says, use the shield of faith to extinguish those things. Use the shield of faith. John Stott, another thing that he says is faith, this shield of faith, lays hold of the promises of God in times of doubt and depression. And faith lays hold of the power of God in times of temptation. 
Faith is a shield no matter what circumstances you face. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. The next thing is the helmet of salvation. I think what we have to realize here with this idea of the helmet protecting your head, God's saving power is the only thing that can protect you for all eternity. God's saving power is the only protection that you have for your souls. It's the only thing that can save you. Is God's ability to save, and that's what we call salvation. <laughs> Think with hope, biblical hope. Confidently expect that God will give you what he has promised to give you. Take up the sword of the Spirit. That's the next piece, which is the Word of God, the Word of God to equip us. And so you might ask this question again, how do I put on the sword of the Spirit? How do I take it up? Well, again, it's the same as the other things. You begin by receiving it. You receive the Word of God. The literal Word of God is Jesus Christ, the one who came to explain to us who God is and to explain to us how you can be saved. You receive Him. That's how you take up the Word to begin with. But you put it on by reading the written word of God, by memorizing the written word of God, by praying the written word of God, by meditating on the written word of God. Because what God says is one of the primary, in fact, did you notice this is the only offensive weapon we have in the whole list. This one can be used for both offense and defense. Uh, But this is the one that you can actually use to go on the attack. And remember, when Jesus himself was tempted in Matthew 4 and other places in Scripture, how did he respond to that attack? is by quoting Scripture. Brothers and sisters, if if our Lord and Savior needed to use Scripture to fight against temptation, how do we think we can do anything different? So read the Scripture, memorize the Scripture, pray the Scripture, meditate on the Scripture. But above, above all, have the Scripture in your life in some way. Because without it, we cannot fight against the schemes, the wiles of the devil. Jesus used Scripture in the battle. And so must we. And then one more piece, one more thing, and that is prayer. He says, and and uh, let's see, this is in verse uh, 18. It says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. What a great reminder. I think what we have to realize is that Paul kind of sums up this whole list and says, by the way, as you're fighting against the devil, the oxygen that you have to keep breathing nonstop is prayer. Because if you want to keep depending on God to help you fight this battle and to defeat the enemy who wants to destroy you, you must depend on him. And the way we do that is through prayer. Again, prayer is our declaration of dependence on God. Not independence, our declaration of dependence on God. And so prayer is like this oxygen. And you notice I highlighted on the screen for you that word all is used four times in that, in that, in that verse. And, um, one scholar pointed out that many Christians pray sometimes in the Spirit. Many Christians pray with some prayers and supplications and they keep alert with some perseverance and they make supplication for some of the saints. But that's not what God asks us to do here. He says, pray with all these things at all times, with all perseverance, for all the saints. This is one of the ways that our church body is able to support one another in this fight. As you pray for one another, pray for your leaders, but don't stop by praying for your leaders. Pray for one another, the people you know in this church family. That's part of God's design for you to survive this battle. 
not just to survive it, but to thrive and win the victory. So through prayer, the battle is real. Use the armor. You know, the conclusion for this point is it's God's armor, but we are responsible to pick it up and use it. The very first verse of this passage, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong means that it's something that kind of happens to you. God makes you strong. He's the one who can make you strong. But then it says, put on the armor of God. We have a responsibility to take up these tools and use them to fight against the enemy. And then the last thing that we see in this passage is the last two verses, verses 19 and 20, is kind of the reason why this is all so important. Why is it even worth fighting this battle? It's so that we can speak the gospel with clarity and with courage, unencumbered. And that's what Paul asked. Paul says, you fight this battle because guess what? Paul's primary concern in all his letters, which I believe is also God's primary concern in all of our lives, is that the gospel goes forward so that more and more people come to know Christ for all eternity. That's God's primary concern. That's Paul's primary concern. And Paul says, if the devil derails you, that process is going to get interrupted and held up. And God says, I don't want that to happen. The gospel needs to go forward. And I also would say this, it's the devil's chief concern as well, but in a negative way. The devil would like nothing more than to see the gospel stopped, derailed, diverted, so that it doesn't go forward and that your neighbors and your friends and your family don't hear this truth about Jesus Christ. And he'll do anything within his power to make that happen. These verses, Paul says, also pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Speak the gospel. That was Paul's calling. That's your calling. Speak it. Declare it with your words and actions. And, you know, there's one hope for this world, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed and demonstrated by his church. God says, I want you to speak the gospel. Use your mouth, use your words to proclaim the gospel. And when Satan wins battles, it gets in the way of the gospel going forward. That's why we fight this battle against the enemy, so that he cannot stop the gospel from changing you and stop the gospel from changing others. So I'd ask you this question as we wrap up this entire series. Do you want to grow Do you want God's grace to be unleashed in your life so that it can affect uh, not only you, but affect those around you for all eternity? I think a necessary step in this walk is what Paul is telling us today. What God is telling you today is fight this battle. Recognize that enemy. Take up the armor of God that God has given you. Use the pieces he's given you. He's given you everything you need for life and godliness. And then the reason we fight this battle is so that we can speak the gospel. We can multiply the grace of God to many, many more people. Because God has promised this. He wants to use his grace to affect you and to affect everyone around you. Not just in this life, but for all eternity. So let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for this chance to gather. We thank you for this chance to look at your word. Lord, I pray that you would help this church to fight the good fight. Lord, that you would not give the enemy victory over us, Lord, but that we would 
uh, have victory over him. God, that we would see many, many more souls coming to know you through Trinity Church in the days ahead. Uh, Those who would come to know you for the first time and those who would continue to grow in their walk with him for all eternity. God, it's to you who are able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now go and make disciples.